you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For the readiness is there, It is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you should be burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need, so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Nat. City on a Hill, good morning. How are we? Good to see you. My name's Nick. If you haven't had the chance to meet before, it's great to be with you again. Three in a row here at Phoenix Park. We're on a roll. Hey, we're going to be uh, not just looking at those few verses, but all of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. So we've got a lot to get through. Before we do get to the text, just a couple of housekeeping matters. An invitation, firstly. If you are here and you serve at our church in any way, whether that is on a Sunday, midweek, gospel communities, whatever that looks like, I want to invite you to the team day that we've talked about for a couple of weeks now and that we are hosting on Saturday, June 24th, here at Phoenix Park. Uh, That is a day to remind you of what God is doing through you uh, at our church and in the world. We've seen already in 2 Corinthians that that God is at work in the world through his church, through his people. Uh, And so as the pastors and the staff, you know, there's a burden to want to thank you, to encourage you and to empower you in what you're already doing, the good work that God is doing. So that day is for that day. Uh, For our core team, anyone who is uh, doing any kind of service in our church, we'd love you to be there. There'll be kids looked after. Uh, There'll be a killer brunch provided. It's the first Saturday of school holidays. We'd love to see you here. Secondly, uh, we really want to help you get the most out of every single book of the Bible that we go to. And you might have heard recently, there's an opportunity now for you to ask questions of anything you've heard in 2 Corinthians, uh, anything that we preach from here on in. 
to SMS those questions in, and we're going to have a shot at answering those uh, during the week uh, at the latter end of the series. So please do, even as I'm preaching now, be thinking about how does this uh, kind of land on you, what kind of questions do you have, because we want to make the most and be as helpful as possible in engaging, engaging with God's Word. So please do let us know any, what questions you have. I'm going to pray, and we're going to dive in to the text. Let me pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in it and that your word is living and active. Lord, we pray that like a sword, you might pierce us with it this morning for our good. Help us grow in love for you. Help us grow in a holy hatred of our own half-heartedness. Help us see Jesus as big and as beautiful as he really is. And that you might come and you might shave and shape and sharpen us to be more like him today. Do this by the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Let me start by uh, introducing you this morning to a man named William Post III. Uh, he grew up some 80 years ago, an orphan. He endured a nomadic adolescence, being thrown around from foster home to foster home. For him, life was a struggle. But then it promised that struggle to come to an end. Post's dreams came true. With just $2.46 in his bank account, he won the lottery. It was 1988, and his $16.2 million worth of winnings promised to change his life. And unfortunately, it did just that. Before Receiving his first annual payment of almost half a million dollars, Post had already bought a restaurant, a used car lot, and an aeroplane. Within three months, he was already half a million dollars in debt. And then the money became the least of his problems. His brother was soon arrested for hiring a hitman to try to kill him and his sixth wife. His relatives convinced him to invest in worthless business ventures. His landlady, who was also his occasional girlfriend, it's a lot, lot going on here, sued him for a third of his cash, and in the end he filed for bankruptcy and he faced a stint in jail for firing a gun at a debt collector. And Post later said, everybody dreams of winning money, but nobody realizes the nightmares that come out of the woodwork or the problems. I was much happier when I was broke. Today we're talking about money. Uh, today, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 take us there, and perhaps money is the, the cause of, and perhaps maybe the solution to, some of life's problems. And it's a topic that we, we don't typically talk about very well, perhaps especially in the church. And that might be because of, or also in spite of, us living in one of the richest parts of the world at the very richest moment, time, in human history. In the room today, if you help, uh, earn the, the average Australian income per year, uh, you are in, or almost in, the top percentage, top percentile of earners in the world right now. And so perhaps because of our intimate acquaintance with money and money's unique ability to tap into and expose our insecurities, our hopes, our longings, our fears... The subject of money, there's a lot of heat around it, but not very much light at all. And so we're going to talk about and think about money today. Jesus himself talked about money more than heaven and hell combined. 
He had a lot to say about it. And the unique contribution we're going to see today from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is that our understanding of money should be, and it's completely opposite to the story I just shared of, of William Post III's experience, is that actually in the hands of God's people, released through generosity given towards God's purposes, money is actually a grace of God given to bless everybody involved. I'm going to help you see that. Uh, the reason that can be is that money isn't just about dollars and cents. Money is about our heart. Money is about where our heart is at. And so we're going to talk about this moment uh, of the, the generosity that was called upon in the church there in Corinth by the Apostle Paul so that we might see what the calling is upon us as people engaging in our world today, engaging with money about how we can approach generosity as Christians. Now to catch us up on the text about how we got here, in recent weeks we've seen Paul, he, he kind of stopped defending himself after he had defended himself for so many chapters, sharing his heart vulnerably, his, his theology, and he's now started to instruct the church there in Corinth on some very specific pastoral matters. And so in the back half of this letter, he wants those who he knows have responded encouragingly to his prior scathing letter, he wants them to, to prepare for him coming back. He's going to visit them again for a third time later. But in readiness for his return, before he gets there, he wants them to fulfill a promise that they made, a commitment that they'd made in the past. And that was that they, the church in Corinth, would commit and contribute financially to a collection that was being collected and then sent to the church in Jerusalem. At this time, the church in Jerusalem was under a lot of pressure. Maybe it was persecution from some of the, the Jewish establishment. Maybe it was a famine that was going on. We don't quite know exactly why, but for whatever reason, they needed material help. And so there's this collection being arranged across kind of the known world at the time. And Paul wants Corinth to participate. And so this is a moment that he's going to call Corinth up to something beyond the divisiveness, beyond the division, beyond the bickering, something where Corinth can, can focus in on doing some good in the world. And so we're going to see how Paul motivates them. Let's first talk about the example Paul uses, an example of generosity that Paul uses to the church. In, in chapter 8, it starts out this way in the first couple of verses. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. And so Paul starts taking their focus up north. Corinth is down in southern part of Greece. Macedonia is north of Greece. And he tells us that this church in Macedonia have contributed incredibly generously. And yet this church in Macedonia had been so persecuted for their Christian faith that they felt it in real terms. They felt material, materially poor because of the social isolation that they had felt because of their Christian faith. And so Paul describes them, and he uses this, this Greek word uh, for deep or, or depth to describe their poverty, the word that we translate extreme. He's essentially saying they were dirt poor. Their, their poverty goes down into the depths. And yet notice the formula that Paul uses to describe how they responded, even though they lived in such poverty. It says, 
their abundance of joy plus their deep, extreme poverty equaled a wealth of generosity. Joy, poverty equals a wealth of generosity. Now, in our our modern minds, we're probably thinking, gee, these guys are irresponsible. This is not what my financial advisor would advise. This is not what the barefoot investor would tell us to invest in here. No, it shouldn't be joy, poverty, generosity. No, it should be an abundance of joy. Yes, go for that. But you've you got, you got to be wise. You've got, you got to wait till you've got an overflow of, of a certain level of income and, and net worth. And then when those two things are combined, then you can start being generous. Well, not so with the Macedonians. And because Paul's highlighting them here in that particular formula, that particular example, it shows us that what Paul is calling out of the church there in Corinth, the Corinthians, isn't so much about how much they give, but the state of their hearts as they give. They're not giving these Macedonians because they have a lot, because they have an overflow of wealth. No, they're giving because they have an overflow of joy in who God has been for them. Jesus himself said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And because of that, you you cannot therefore serve God and money. Money is a matter of the heart. Money has this unique ability to colonize all of our heart to the point that we can't serve either. It's one or the other. And that means for generosity to be evident. Your heart's going to have to be full of joy in God. We see this as as Paul goes on uh, in verse 3. He says, if I can find it, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. And so Paul, as he's writing here and reflecting on it, he seems to be just as amazed as we might be at their generosity. The Macedonians gave sacrificially according to their kingdom priorities. And they begged to be allowed to participate in this kingdom need. They thought it a favour to be able to contribute and be allowed to give. And so notice the link that they make, or that Paul observes in what they were doing. It says that the Macedonians saw their, their giving money to the church in Jerusalem as if they themselves were giving themselves to the Lord. Now Paul's already told the church in Corinth a bit about money. You might be familiar with that classic chapter in the Bible that gets pulled out in every wedding, 1 Corinthians 13, about what love is. And in it, we perhaps pass by this sentence, but it tells us about, about giving. It says, if I give away all I have and I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And so again, it's not so much about the gift, is it? God doesn't need your money. It's not so much about the gift, but the heart of the giver. And the heart of the givers there in Macedonia was gospel-minded and God-centered. Their giving was giving themselves, giving as an act of worship. 
And yes, it probably literally looked like giving literal coins into a literal jar of clay and sending that across to the church in Jerusalem. It was very practical. It looked very normal. It looked like an everyday mundane activity. And yet, Paul says, it was an act of grace. God was in it. God was doing something in that very ordinary, normal activity. And so notice what Paul doesn't say and what we can sometimes get hung up on as Christians. Well, how much does God want me to give? What, what, what does generosity look like in dollars and cents? And Paul's here, he's not saying, can you believe it? Macedonia gave 11% of their income. Can you believe it? They raised $50,000 for the church in Jerusalem. No, it's not about the amount. It's not about some kind of robotic obedience to some religious standard of tithing. No, it's about the heart and about one's attitude to God and his work in the world. And so our behavior with money is a behavior of our heart. This is why giving is an act of grace. This is why it's something God himself is in. God is at work as our hearts overflow with joy and practically that leads to generosity. Now, it's incredible to think about if we swap out their experience with some of our own experience with money. Do you know, clicking confirm on a bank transfer, if you are sending that money happily to kingdom needs, God's in it. It is an act of grace. Drawing money out from an ATM to give to your kid to send on to a missionary, God is in it. An act of grace. Signing up to, to sponsor a compassion child, joyfully wanting to give to someone who doesn't have as much as you, God is in it. An act of grace. And it sounds like such a normal thing to do. And yet when our hearts meet gospel priorities and joy in what God has done and who he's been for us, it's an act of grace overflowing. And so Paul challenges the church there in Corinth in, in verse 8. He says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake... He became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. One way to tell how much we grasp the grace of God in sending Jesus to us is not to look where we might ordinarily look, our, our emotional outbursts of praise, how we roll out of bed in the morning and think, Jesus, another day to serve you. The state of our heart isn't kind of dictated by how long we can keep our hands up in worship. No, it's by looking at our bank account, by looking at the, the outgoings, how generous we are with our money. Generosity towards God's people is a key marker of genuine love. And generosity is just the, the appropriate application of knowing here that, that Jesus has come. And when he came in the flesh, of all that he, he, he gave up, the, the glory that he gave up to come and live in poverty, to die naked and alone, that, that Jesus in his riches gave it up so that he might become poor, so that you and I might become rich in him. And so how is our joy? As you think about Jesus and, and all he gave up to come and to 
live in your place, to die in your place, and to rise again? Does it resonate? Is there any emotional uplift in your heart as you think about that? Notice Paul's words here. He says that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. For your sake, this very important phrase, not just for their sake, not just in theory, not as some just distant historical phenomenon, but for your sake, Jesus gave up all he had and became poor so that by it you might become in him spiritually and eternally rich. That means that whatever the state of your bank account right now, whatever the pinch of interest rate rises that you feel and how that impacts your self-perception of your own self-worth and success and net worth, the reality is here that, that Jesus has made you rich. Jesus has made you rich where it matters most. There's a story in Jesus' ministry where he's talking to the crowds and someone blurts out a question from the crowd about related to an inheritance. It's a financial question. And it was this guy who, who Jesus starts to tell a story about who was incredibly successful in, in the eyes of the world. He was uh, kind of going on in, in business, being very successful, killing it financially. His investments were growing. His salary was increasing. His savings rate was going up and to the right. And so Jesus tells us that this guy started to think about, well, what should I do with all this surplus income that I have coming in? What, how should I think about spending it? And he goes, you know what? I need bigger barns. I need a couple more rooms on my house. I need a nicer car. And in a worldly sense, we'd probably agree with the guy. It's like, yeah, you should scale up. You would actually get more of a return if you did invest the capital back in to the business and scale it up. You've worked hard. You deserve this. And yet Jesus says about that man, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And someone else is going to build the barns. Someone else is going to drive the car. Someone else is going to live in the renovated house. You see, for us, isn't it true that, that money is so often a security blanket? And yet, it's like a blanket to protect us from an oncoming bushfire. It's not really doing anything for what matters. No, the only security that we can find, true security, is in Jesus and in who he is and in what he has done for us. His perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection, all done for your sake. And when you encounter Jesus, as the Macedonians had encountered Jesus, you don't just think about, all right, what should I pay for it? What, what, what can I give away? No, he's calling for our whole life. Jesus wants our whole life, our whole self, to be devoted to him, to be given to him and to his work in the world. And so God doesn't want your money. He wants far more than that. He wants your life and everything involves. He wants your heart and everything that it might be attached to. In Jesus, your heart can find a joy so powerful that you want him to have the rest of your life as well. Now, it's not all conceptual. Paul goes on to more practical matters, and he tells the Corinthians how to go about giving, how to be generous. 
And so in between where we're going to, I'll take us into chapter 9 now, but in between our text read out and where we're going to go next, Paul talks about some more practical matters about how the collection itself will be collected. He tells the church that, hey, Titus is coming and he's going to send with him two others because they're going to have kind of a committee to protect the collection. And it tells us that it's just a, a modern church. We need good checks and balances and accountabilities and systems when it comes to managing finances for the sake of our integrity. Paul was already thinking about that 2,000 years ago, that this money needed to be protected so that people could trust that where they were giving, it was actually going. And so these people were going to come and look after the gift. But after sharing those details, Paul tells the church about how to give and how not to give. He says in, in chapter 9, verse 5, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so Paul says that there's, there's a way to give that feels like an exaction, as if someone is taking something from you. There's a way to give that is sparing. That is, it's not generosity, it's thinking about what's, what's the least I can spare? What's the least I can lose? There's a way to give that's reluctant and feels like an obligation. That is, that it's not coming from a heart of joy or genuine love, but from cold-hearted legalism. And instead of those ways of how not to give, Paul encourages the church here to give willingly, bountifully, and cheerfully. Now, uh, actually, all this talk of money has made me think, I've actually forgotten the money I needed to buy lunch today. I need to buy. Has anyone got? Has anyone got twenty bucks? Twenty bucks? Oh, Nat. Hey, thanks so much. Thanks so much for, for giving, giving me this. Appreciate that, Nat. That that looks very cheerful. That looks that looks that looks very willing, Nat. Nat. Now, now, why 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 did Nat just burst out of her chair willingly and giving me money? Hey, that doesn't happen often. You know why she burst out of her chair to give me twenty dollars? Because I gave it to her two minutes before the service. <laughs> And isn't that a principle that if we actually realize that the money that God's calling us to give generously is actually already his. You give willingly, you give cheerfully, you give bountifully when you realize that, hey, it's actually not my money. You're just giving it back to the one who gave it to you. The biblical understanding of money is that all that we have in our life, all that you have in your life, that you stress about and you think about and you take it to the mechanic like your car and you, know, you, you need managed, it's actually God's. And God has entrusted it to you to steward. And if we grasp that understanding, then, then perhaps we, we might jump out of our chair wanting willingly and cheerfully to give because giving feels like an exaction when we've got to kind of hold on to it as if this is all I've got, this is who I am, this is mine. Giving will be sparing when it feels like, oh man, this is what I've got and I've got to give it away. And yet giving will be cheerful when we recognize, no, it's, it's actually God's already. Giving will be bountiful when it's not, oh, I've got to give this away. No, it's, oh, 
I'm just going to give some back. All we have is God's already. And so often in the church and as Christians, as I said, we, we, we get caught up on the, the technicalities of giving. It's like the one thing in life we want to read the terms and conditions. It's like, it's like tell me, what, what is the, the least I can get away with? What, what, what is the expect, expectation here? What, what have I signed up to? Is it 10%? Is it less? Is it more? Is it, is it gross? Is it net? You know, one day we're going to be in heaven. And as we're there in heaven, just delighting in the richness of God's glory, you're going to bump into a Macedonian Christian. And I wonder if when we bump into one of these Macedonian Christians, we're going to think, should I ask him, was it 10%? Was it, was it on gross income or was it on net income? No, we're probably going to be embarrassed as we stand next to them in glory. God isn't asking us for something that he hasn't already given us. God doesn't want your money. He wants your whole life. He isn't asking just for 10% of your heart. He wants your whole heart. And so a gospel perspective sees that all that we have really is what God has. That he's entrusted it to us to steward and to direct, to send according to the priorities that he lets us know that he already has in the scriptures. And so practically that means that, that yes, God, he's not an idiot. He knows, hey, you actually need to spend some of what I've given you. It's there to provide for your life. And he knows that we live in one of the relatively most expensive parts of the world. So very practically, he knows, hey, because of that, you should probably be smart and save some because you're going to need some bigger expenses every now and then. You should probably be smart and invest it for the long term. Having a superannuation, it's actually a good idea. You should think about how God might provide for you now for the future. And yet, isn't it true that sometimes under the guise of wisdom, we want to keep all the more of his money for ourselves and we can kind of confine generosity as the awkward, estranged cousin at the dining table of our financial decision-making. It's just annoying that it's there. But rather, as Christians, we should, we should make generosity the first line on our budget. We should make generosity the thing that we set goals for, that we celebrate, that we cheer each other on for. Don't just post on Instagram the picture of the sold sign on your next home. Don't just cut happily the ribbon off your next new car. Get excited. Find some joy in the fact that in giving what God has already given to you, you are being used to fuel and fund more kingdom progress, more gospel growth in the world. That God is blessing you with this money, that you might pass it on to be a blessing to others, for you to experience that joy and for that person to experience that grace of God providing for them through you. And so the big idea is that we should lift our eyes to what God wants to do with our money in the world. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. There is not one square inch, as the famous quote goes, over the whole domain of human existence over which Christ does not say, mine. Paul Tripp says, your life is much bigger than a good job, an understanding spouse and non-delinquent kids. It is bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. 
God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom and progressively changing them into his likeness. And he wants you to be a part of it. And so let us be a people who give cheerfully, willingly, bountifully, who who use our money for the kingdom's sake instead of our money using us. A church who who prioritizes very practically the gospel in our lives by changing how we spend our time, our talents, and our treasure for the sake of Jesus. Now finally, this isn't uh, all about us. Generosity is actually also for your benefit. Let's talk about the benefits of generosity because Paul takes it there for us. He said back in chapter 8, in this matter, I give my judgment, this benefits you. He's trying to compel Corinth to give and he tells them, hey, giving is actually going to benefit you. But what we might fall afoul of or, or be in danger of is, is filling out what comes next with the benefits that we want to see. How we respond after we think about, hey, actually generosity might be a beneficial thing, reveals a lot about what is actually going on in the state of our hearts. Because in our success-saturated society, benefit is often only ever seen in financial terms. And so there's a whole movement, isn't there, under the, the name of Christianity that tries to sell to people that if you are to give, then God is going to be obligated and bound to give financially back to you all the more. And so we might just end up using generosity in order to be born greedy or because we're more greedy. Now, in reality, that, that teaching, that, that idea, uh, if we step back for a moment, we can see for, it for what it is. It is a, a spiritual pyramid scheme where, where people, very well-dressed people, prey on the vulnerable and the poor to try to give them a get-rich-quick scheme through God. And yet it's those at the top who always get the money and those at the bottom who lose it. But Paul does say there are benefits to generosity. They're just very different benefits than what our world might want. He says in chapter 9, verse 10, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. And you might know one of the principles of good financial management or investment is leveraging the power of compound interest. Compound interest being where things can grow passively as they grow on top of each other through interest or dividends. So the more you invest and then reinvest for as long a period of time as possible, the the longer the the principal or the bigger the principal will become. $100 with a 10% return over 30 years annually becomes $1,700. $100 invested per month at the same rate of return for 30 years is going to be almost $200,000. What Paul's saying here is actually that there is compound interest on generosity. And yet the compound interest or the return is not financial. It's to do with your character. It's to do with your righteousness. Of course, there are benefits beyond you. Gospel ministry expanding. God's kingdom being resourced and fueled. Bibles being given, staff being and leaders raised up to minister uh, and serve people. But for the giver, generosity compounds to your character. The dividends, uh, a generous spirit, we're told. A larger heart, more thanksgiving to God. And so the challenge for us in our modern 
success-saturated world and with particularly our financial pressures, in a world where money is kind of the way to show your clout, to prove your access, show your status and your class, the question for us will be character, righteousness, thanksgiving. It doesn't sound as sexy, does it, as, as what we can buy with money. Will our hearts actually see that benefit as a benefit? See, money is a very dangerous thing, and we live in very dangerous times. Paul says to Timothy in 1 Timothy, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Money shapes us. Money prods us. Money pulls at us. And money just might lead our hearts by the hand, into a self-sabotaging lifestyle where we lose our senses to what God actually cares about. And so the vision that Paul outlines here might not actually be attractive to us compared to the nicer house. Growth in character, more worship and thanksgiving to God, more people brought into his kingdom, that might not be as attractive as the new Apple Vision Pro goggles, even though they are incredibly ugly, let's all be, let's, let's be honest. <laughs> But Paul's motives challenge us to think about our own. Are we really bought into this generosity thing because we think God will just give us money back? God will bless us. And when we think of blessing, we think purely in financial terms. Or do we see it as a privilege to be used by God to bless God's people, to fuel God's mission? Is it a joy to give back the things that God owns already? so that he might use it to shape us to be more like Jesus. Could we cry out like Paul does at the end of this chapter, after talking about giving everything away as much as possible, like giving generously and cheerfully, he says, thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. It's an inexpressible gift, he says, to be able to give. And so money has this unique ability to expose where our hearts are really at. And perhaps that's why God gives it to us, because it's our heart that God is after. It all comes back to those words of Jesus. No one can serve God or money. We don't need bigger barns. We need bigger hearts, a bigger vision for what God is doing in the world and what he wants to do through us with his money. What we need is a heart that wants God more than money, a heart that loves to build God's house more than our own, a heart that sees character as the best kind of compound interest because becoming like Jesus is what we truly want. A heart that has encountered the grace of God. Christ became poor so that you in him might become rich. Let's pray that we might know how rich we already are in him so that we might handle God's money in God's ways. Uh, as I pray, let me just encourage you with uh, everyone's eyes closed just to put your hands out open before you just as a, a posture and a sign. God, this is all I have. Naked I came into the world. Naked we're going to return to him. That all that God gives us for a time, for a season to steward. He gives so that he might make us more like Jesus and that he, we might fuel 
kingdom and gospel ministry in our world. There is nothing in our hands that God needs. What he wants is what's in our heart. So let me pray. Come, Holy Spirit. We confess, Lord, that so many of us, we have hearts and our hearts have hands that cling to the things of this world. We cling to money. We cling to the security that we think it provides us. God, we pray, would you open up the hands of our hearts to embrace not the the fading material things of this world, but the unfading and eternal glory of God. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his grace. That though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor. That by his poverty we might become rich. Lord, give us the same priorities. Give us gospel priorities. Help us be people whom you prioritize in us, making us more like Jesus. And so use money to do it. Use the practical things of this world as a mere tool to shape us into what we really want, to be more like Christ. Draw us out of ourselves and toward you and toward what you're doing in this world that matters forever. And so make us holy, we pray. Make us generous. Make us willing. Make us cheerful. Make us mission-minded. Free us from the traps of Eastern suburban life. And ignite our hearts with a holy joy that overflows in generosity. Ignite our hearts with a holy hatred at our own self-centeredness. Only you can do that. And so we ask again, come, Holy Spirit. Change us that we might see Jesus and what you've done as more valuable, more precious, more worthy than anything we might accrue in this world. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.